Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse, beginning with verse 54. The subject this morning, needed men of greatness. Needed men of greatness. Men of greatness. May we bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for what we've already experienced in the songs and the uh, spirit of expectancy and the praise of God's people and these reminders and announcements about the opportunities we have to give to the causes of Christ. Now open the word to us, Lord. May the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. May we hear from God beyond the voice of the preacher. Lord, I pray thou would give our own heart, my own heart, that sensitivity to preach as a dying man to dying men, and to preach as never sure to preach again. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, when they heard these things, that is, the testimony of Stephen, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of their city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. If you should go to Jerusalem today, you could find a gate called Stephen's Gate. Tradition says it is, is it, at that, it is at that place that Stephen was standing when he began to give that longest speech in the book of Acts, a testimony of his knowledge of the Scripture, a testimony of what God had done through Joseph, through Moses, through the prophets, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was there that they railed upon him, and they gnashed their teeth, and they stopped their ears, and they ran upon him, and pulled him outside the city. And it's very interesting, the construction here of the sentences and, and, uh, and the word pictures. They pulled him outside the city to the place of the stoning. And many Bible students believe that this was the foot of Golgotha. If you should go, go there today, you would f- see a bus station at the foot of Golgotha Hill. And out behind the bus station, there's a clearing some of us went to that spot and stood early in the morning and tried to imagine we could see the gate across the way they're bringing Stephen out there and casting him down and throwing those stones at him and he looked up and he said Lord lay not this sin to their charge he was a great forgiver because he knew the Lord so well The Lord Jesus, perhaps at the top of Golgotha, dying on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And a few weeks later, Stephen, down to the foot of that hill, bleeding, mashed, those stones just about to take away all of his life, and he cries, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Now, in my estimate, Stephen was a great man. Somebody has said the only thing greater than greatness is the ability to recognize greatness. And I think you can get into something greater than greatness this morning by being able to recognize greatness in the life of this man. Let's go back just a little bit and find where we first meet Stephen. Turn to Acts chapter 6 and let's read the account that uh, brings him to the forefront. There was a need in the city of Jerusalem, in the church of Jerusalem. There was a murmuring between the Grecians and the Hebrews. Now this murmuring may have, been an may have been caused by something imaginary or it could have been a real thing. The Grecians were those Hellenistic Jews who had lived in other parts of the world and spoke the Yiddish language or the Hebrew language with an accent. The Hebrews were those who lived in the city of Jerusalem. And of course they spoke the Hebrew language with a purity and without any accent. But as the church grew, people had come from to Jerusalem from all over the world. Many of them be became converted and became Christians. And they became part of the church. And by the time Acts 6 arrives, you'll notice that the disciples were not just adding to the church. They were multiplying. There were multitudes now. Perhaps there were 50 to 60,000 Christians in that church. And the apostles were ministering to them. Judas had betrayed the Lord Jesus. He was gone. Matthias in chapter 1 had taken Judas's place. He was one of the 12 and they were ministering to this church. And the, and the burdens became great and greater and the murmuring was more than could be taken. And so the apostles did a wise thing. They said to the multitude, it is not wise, it is not meet for us to leave the word of God in prayer and wait on these tables. Let us choose seven men. Let them meet these qualifications. Number one, they are, look in verse three, they are men of honest report. That is, the people look at them and can recognize that they are what they are. They're honest, honest people, honest report. Secondly, they are men full of the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. These men were to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, they were to be filled with wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. That wisdom which is from above, it is peaceable, easy to be entreated, wisdom. And the wisdom comes from the Word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as we read the Word, wisdom is absorbed into our heart. It is, our hearts and lives become saturated with it as we read and study the Word of God. You want to know somebody who is wise. You want to go to someone who can give you wise counsel. Go to someone who knows the Word of God. Not just letter perfect, but they know it in their heart. These men were to be filled with the wisdom of God. And then fourthly, men whom we may appoint over this business, that is people who would give themselves 
to being appointed over the business. That means a spirit of humility and meekness. Not everybody can take that task. Lots of folks have to be managers. They're just on the managerial end. They have to run things. They cannot accept the position of being appointed over anything. Now one of the requirements or qualifications for this responsibility was that they have a meek and humble spirit that would say to the apostles, what do you have to do? What needs to be done? We'll do it. And the apostles said, now these are the four qualifications for the men that need to do this work. And so the, 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 the saying pleased the whole multitude and they, that is the church, chose seven men. Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and it goes on to mention Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Teman, and Parmenius, and Nicholas. We mentioned last Wednesday night, this divides itself into two, four, and one. Two great soul winners, Stephen and Philip. We hear much from them in the next chapters. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Philip is a great evangel. And God uses him to bring revival at Samaria and then a touch of the life of that, that, that Ethiopian eunuch who went down to Ethiopia and led revival and all of, much of Ethiopia became Christians. And Halle Selass, who was the leader of Ethiopia in the life of time of many of us before the communists took over there, Halle Selass says they date their, their spiritual understanding of God and of Christ and of Christianity back to that Ethiopian eunuch who was converted by the first deacon, Philip. And then we have four men that we don't know very much about, don't hear from them ever again. They're never even mentioned again. Never mentioned anywhere else other than that one place. Those four men, Prochorus, Nicanor, Teman, and Parmenius, we don't know anything else about them, except they were numbered with these seven. Now there are two reasons why we may not know anything about them. One is that they may have never done anything. There's some people that don't do anything. They just sit around, twiddle their thumbs, don't ever accomplish anything. And uh, that's an interesting way to approach life. There are lots of folks in America like that. They never do anything. They just wait for somebody else to do something for them. They're like that guy that was so poor and so needy and so hungry, he was begging for some beans, just anything. And so he was offered some beans, and the guy reached up and said, well, are they shelled? He didn't even have the energy to shell them. There are lots of folks like that. God wants us to shell the beans, haul the corn, dig the garden, hoe it out, get us something done. Now, it could have been men like that, and there are some people that don't do anything. On the other hand, these four men could have been people that did things behind the scenes, and nobody ever knew about it. And there are lots of folks like that. We know about some of the great men of history. We know about Abraham Lincoln. We know about George Washington. We know about John Kennedy. We know about Ronald Reagan. We know their names. We recognize them immediately. We recognize them and we honor them. We respect them. But we can name hundreds and hundreds of names who stood behind those men and did the work. Nobody ever heard of them. Nobody ever knew who they were. And it could be these four men were people who stood behind the scenes and did a lot of that work. They also serve who only, they also serve who only stand and wait, somebody wrote. And so we need to remember that God's work is not always done by people who are in the public eye. 
There are lots of folks who are able to take a back seat and stand behind the scenes and hold the lines in prayer and finances and in uh, doing the work and never take any credit for it. Somebody said, there's no end to what God can do with you if you're not afraid, if you don't care about who gets the credit. No end to what God can do with you and through you if you don't care who gets the credit. And we start getting jealous one of another and we want the credit and somebody else got more credit than I did and they called on this guy more to pray or they did this, honored this man more than they honored me. Then we're in trouble. These four men very possibly stood behind the scenes and did a good work. And then there's one other man, the last man listed in that list, Nicholas. We read about him in Revelation chapter 2. He was the man who led a wrong cult. He, he led a wrong false doctrine. Lots of people followed him. And Jesus wrote to that church through John and said, there's some of those who follow Nicholas, Nicolaitans. These things I hate, get rid of them. And we, really, we realize that it's possible for a person to serve in an office and a responsibility and lead an insurrection, lead people the wrong way, do the wrong thing. But Stephen was a man full of God, full of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the scripture says that because of his ministry and because of these early deacons, the word of God increased the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I do not have time to give you a long message this morning, but I would like to sum up what I want to say with just four statements about greatness. Wanted, needed men of greatness. I think Stephen was one of the great men of all time. And I want to give you these four qualifications. First of all, a real man makes much of the Bible. He makes the Bible the supreme book of his life. There are lots of people who have lived and died and some folks have thought they were great. I don't know. I think Stephen was great because he was a tremendous man of God, not necessarily because he was a great preacher, though he was. Not necessarily because he was one of the first deacons and soul winners, though he was that. Not simply because he was uh, a Christian martyr. He was the first Christian martyr, but Abel was a martyr. He was the preacher of blood. John the Baptist was a martyr. He preached against adultery, had his head presented on a charger. But Stephen was a great man because of something else. You know, they used to say John Wayne was a great man. He was a real man. He's really something. But anybody that could guzzle beer and whiskey like he did, I don't know whether he's much of a man or not. They said that Pete Rose was a tremendous player and coach. He was the aqua velva man. He cussed like a wheel horse. I don't know how much of a man that is. When Elvis Presley died in Memphis, thousands and thousands and thousands of people went down there. Even today you go to Memphis and you go down the avenue where Elvis lives and there's almost always a line there at that gate. They have to keep guards there to keep people from coming in and stealing the corpse. Elvis Presley died because of drugs, led the sex revolution. 
He left his early moorings. He grew up in a church knowing the hymns. And if you ever wondered why he could sing those great hymns and melt your heart with them, it's because he knew them when he was, he grew up with them. He sang when he was little. That's how he started singing. And then he perverted all that. And he was the forerunner of much that you hate today. Noble, godly, moral-minded Christians hate some of the sex revolution that's going on. And Elvis Presley is largely responsible for it. And when you buy his records and you have them in your home, you're honoring him. I don't know whether that's much of a man or not. You may not like what I'm saying. God bless you anyway. I didn't ask you. But I want to say Stephen was a great man because he was a man who made much of the Bible. He knew the Word of God. How do you know he knew the Word of God? If you read chapter 7 carefully, you'll know that he preached without notes and mastered all of that history from Joseph to Jesus. That is, from Genesis to Matthew. He knew it all. It's the longest speech in the entire book of Acts. And he begins with Joseph, and he shows how Joseph was hated by his brothers and was rejected. But later, when he became prime minister in the land of Egypt, his brothers came down and bowed before him, and he was received. He pointed out how Moses, in the first 40 years of his life, was hated by his brothers. And he went out one day to try to settle a dispute. And some of those brothers, some of the Jews down there said, Moses, who made you a guardian over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses left for his life and fled for his life. Went over and spent 40 years tending his father-in-law Jethro's flock on the backside of the desert. But then Moses came back and he became a somebody in Egypt, went down to the to the Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go. God said, let my people go. And over and over and over again, he said it. Until Pharaoh's heart was so hardened, God had to, by his own hand, lead the Israelites out of the land of bondage and the people accepted Moses then. And then, then Stephen told about the prophets who had come. Some of them they sought asunder. They tied Moses between two, uh, rather Isaiah between two trees, bowed those trees down and tied him in two. And then, and then they let the trees up and then he took a saw and sawed that noble courtly preacher in half. He told about Jeremiah and the other, other great prophets and he told how they had rejected them all. And then Jesus came. They rejected the Lord Jesus. But, said Stephen, one day Jesus is coming back and they're going to receive him. They're going to receive him. Now that's the story that Stephen told there at Stephen's gate while he was on trial. He was about to die for his faith. He made much of the Bible. Secondly, he was not afraid to stand alone. In chapter 10, chapter 6, verses 41 and 50. Look over there. Or rather, chapter 6, verse 10. I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen was so full of God. He was so filled with the Lord that he was willing and able to stand alone. You know, I have some friends in this church this morning. Maybe some enemies. I don't know. 
but, but I have some friends. And it's comparatively easy to stand here and preach, talk about Jesus and talk about the wickedness of sin and the horror, horror of hell and how wicked people are who have turned Jesus down and so on. Every once in a while there's an amen. Not, not often, but every once in a while, amen. Thank you, one or two. But you know, imagine standing by yourself. Standing by yourself. Out there with a crowd that hates you. They hate what you're talking about. They hate Jesus. And they're just about to gnaw on you and gnash their teeth at you. And they're about to kill you. And you still have the gall and the gumption, the strength to stand there by yourself. I tell you, that's greatness. Lots of people can't do that. We can come over here to church and sing and we can pass out some tracts if five or ten people go with us. And we can do a few religious things. But out there where we're by ourselves, in the factory and in the school and so on, we shrivel up inside. And we're scared to open our mouth. The thing that made Stephen great, he was willing and able to stand by himself. That's what it takes in times like these, to be able to stand, and having done all to stand. Thirdly, he was willing to be made a public example. In chapter 7, verses 51 to 54, you Stephen said this, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them who showed before you of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dis disposition of angels and have not kept it. And they gnashed on him. He's by himself, didn't have anybody to protect him, didn't have anybody to stand with him, didn't have anybody to say, get your dirty hands off of Stephen, he's a God's great, beautiful man. Nobody to protect him, nobody to come to his rescue. Stephen's will willing to be made a public example. I want to ask you, are you like that? We need some men. I, I want to ask you to place before God some men who are willing to stand. That's the reason the scripture says that one of the qualifications for a deacon is that he not be double-tongued. Here's a little crowd over here, and so he says this to them. And they like it. Boy, he's a pretty good guy. And over here, this guy knows that these people feel this way, so he says this to them. And they like that. We need some men who just stand. Get their convictions from the Bible, not from what they think is right. Lots of people think something's right and it's wrong. But get it from the Bible. What does the Bible tell us to do? What does the Word of God tell us to do? Find out and then take that stand. And if there's nobody else, stand there. And I want to tell you that isn't easy. But that's what gives greatness. Woodrow Wilson fought, literally fought, until he was weak in body for what he knew was right in his day. Some of you lived in Woodrow Wilson's day. I've read about it in history. And he became an invalid while still in office because his fight was contested. Congress wouldn't go along with him. America later found out Woodrow Wilson was right. 
Right now we have a president who is right about Central America. He is right. He is right in saying if we don't stop communism there, it'll soon be in Mexico and then it'll come across the border into Texas. He is right and he is standing, but we have a Congress that's weak and vacillating and they won't stand with him. And I want to tell you, we'll live to see the day we regret those things. And some of you in this audience may not agree with that. A man has to do what is right, not because he feels it, but because he gets it from principles, spiritual truths. And Stephen stood alone. Last of all, and I must hurry, a real man influences his atmosphere. A real man influences his atmosphere. He influences those around him. Woodrow Wilson went into a barber shop just to get a haircut. He was working at uh, Princeton at that time, Princeton University. And uh, he said before long a man came in and sat in that other barber chair he said, I didn't have any idea who he was. But he said, suddenly the whole atmosphere of that barbershop changed and seemed to be charged with spiritual power. And he said, somehow I felt like I was in a religious service. And I couldn't quite understand what it was. It wasn't that anybody was so much preaching. But he said, there was a man over here that just seemed to be electrically charged with God. And he was talking about things of God. And after a while, he finished his barber, got hair, haircut, and got up and paid and went out. And Winston and, and Woodrow Wilson said to the barber, who was that man? Who was that man? Oh, the barber said, that was D.L. Moody, the preacher. D.L. Moody. Greatness. Changes the atmosphere where we are. I don't know what you thought of V.V. Cook. V.V. Cook was a car dealer in Louisville. I knew him. I grew up in the church where he was a member. He was a deacon there. V.V. Cook was a wealthy man, made a lot of money selling cars. Every year he gave his pastor a new car. Every year. I knew Dr. Gibson well. Dr. Gibson always drove a new car. Not because he was wealthy, he refused a lot of salary raises from his church, but he got a car because that man loved him. Georgetown College today has a lot of buildings because V.V. Cook cared enough to give. Changed the atmosphere where he was. V.V. Cook didn't always have it. He went into a partnership with God. Years ago, I was coming back from Texas and got sick in Longview, Texas and was in the hospital there. I didn't even know that, this was in, that R.G. Letourneau lived in Longview until then. And R.G. Letourneau heard that I was there, just an insignificant Baptist preacher, but he cared and he heard about it. He sent his chaplain up to see me every day. And when I got out of the hospital, he sent a car after me to come out to his place. And I went out there and he showed me all of his place. And then he told me some of his stories about ministering and investments in the work of various places. He changed the atmosphere where he was. A great man changes atmosphere Instead of charging it with negativism, 
Instead of charging the atmosphere with insinuations and innuendos and negatives and pulling people down, he lifts them up. That's what Stephen did. And Stephen lifted up Jesus. Wanted men of greatness. You could qualify if you're willing. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And I want to tell you with our heads bowed and eyes closed just the secret of how Stephen could be a great man, how you can too, a great man or a great woman. Right now with our heads bowed and eyes closed, invite Jesus to be your Lord. Jim sang a song a while ago, it may not be on the mountain height or over the stormy sea, but my Lord has a place of service for you. Would you dare say, Lord, use me. I beg you to take me and make me and break me and mold me and use me. Could you do that? It begins at Calvary. The Lord of glory died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. Would you give to him your life and your heart? In Jesus' name, Father, we pray for God's power upon us today. Amen. Will you stand, please? As we sing today, Brother Jim, let's sing, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have alerted my, light, my sight. As we sing this hymn, it's number what? 389, number 389. I'd like to ask that we resolve in our hearts to do two things. Number one, reserve to put Christ first. Resolve in our heart to put Jesus first. That may mean that we need to come and confess Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Take a stand for Him. I encourage you to do that. It also may mean that we're going to place our offerings in this big container over here and say, by the grace of God, I want to make a commitment to the Lord. Either a first commitment or a second commitment, or I want to pay what I've already committed, or I want to bring my coins to the Lord. And I want to ask you to come and do that while we sing the first stanza. Who will do it for Jesus, for His glory, for His honor? I just want to ask you to get up and come from where you are and do it for Christ. While we sing, and let's not sing like we're at a funeral. I am resolved as a great hymn a great militant hymn. We sing it big and sing it from our hearts. I want to ask you to come and do that today while we sing.